This is the Mulberry Lane Show. The Mulberry Lane Show. Brought to you by Elisa Ilana Jewelry. And online at elisailana.com. Exclusive interviews, fun, music, celebrities. Your weekend getaway. Now, here's Mulberry Lane, Rachel, Bo, and Ellie Cat. Be a part of the family. It's Rachel here with your radio sisters, Bo and Ellie. You know it. And you know what time it is. Mm-hmm. It's time for the Mulberry Lane Show. <laughs> well, another weekend, another jam-packed show for you guys. It's real, it's here, it's ready. All right, here we go. Let's get to those guests. <laughs> The Mulberry Lane Show's on Celebrity story songs You're gonna have it going on When we tell you who's stopping by now First up, lead singer, lead guitarist, and songwriter with 38 Special, Don Barnes, is here You know Don best from these 38 Special hits about Don's lost solo album. Now, this was recorded in 1989, was never released due to a record company merger. You're going to get the scoop and how that album has now seen the light of day. Don is going to give you all the behind the scenes on this very intriguing music business story. Yes, and this album back then in 1989 was prophetically titled Ride the Storm. And Don really had to ride the storm to get this album released. You're in for a treat. It's great music. This is the kind of story you don't hear every day. The type you can tell your friends at a cocktail party or in the school parking lot. (laughs) Okay, and then you're in for some more creative artistry. Allie, who's next? Okay, well then you'll meet author Catherine McGee. Not to be confused with singer Catherine McPhee. That's right. McGee, not McPhee. Now, in 2016, Katie introduced the futuristic young adult novel, The Thousandth Floor. And this book skyrocketed all the way to number two on the New York Times bestseller list. It was one of the summer's hottest reads. So she's back with the sequel to this book. This one is called The Dazzling Heights. It's out now. And today you'll hear the inside story about how her novels come to her, how she writes, and how it wasn't at Princeton where she learned how to write a novel. She learned it on the job. So stay tuned for that from Katie, aka Catherine McGee. All right, Rachel, what's up next? If you've got a troublesome cat, do we have the guy for you? Rachel, is this for you too? Now, if you guys are fans of Animal Planet, I'm sure you've seen the show My Cat from Hell. Now, this is basically the cat whisperer, Jackson Galaxy. He was a singer-songwriter, believe it or not. Once again. And fell into this role as cat behaviorist. So you'll hear his pretty interesting story, how an industry is kind of popping up around cat psychology. Check out My Cat from Hell. Airs Saturdays, 7 p.m. Central on Animal Planet. Yep, he's a cool cat who loves cats. Gotta love it. 
Okay, guys, before we jump into the deep end of the show today, I had a mom fail this week. Ooh, these are the best. <laughs> tell, tell us about it, Rachel. <laughs> this is one of those situations where you just get really embarrassed because your brain isn't working. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so Casey was home sick earlier this week from school. Okay. I had a sore throat and kind of just generally feeling not very good at all. Okay. So I went ahead and took Willow to school. Casey was home. I was fixing him chicken noodle soup, taking care of him, and then I got some of my errands done on the way to pick up Willow from school. By the time I get there, I'm completely on autopilot by now. So then Willow gets in the car and I'm like, where's Casey? I'm pulling around the insane pickup line. You know, a teacher says, who are you waiting for? And I'm like, Casey, I don't see Casey. So then they're talking on their walkie-talkies. Casey, anyone seen Casey? And then finally, (laughs) finally they uh, get the walkie-talkie of the secretary inside. Anyone seen Casey? And I hear the secretary's voice through the walkie-talkie say, he was homesick today. I'm like, of course he was. I was home with him all day. Oh, my God. At this point, I'm just wishing me and my minivan would just disappear. (laughs) Just poof, I'm gone. (laughs) Well, Rachel, you're not alone. We've all had moments like that. It's called too many things in your head and something's got to give, right? Mom brain. (laughs) We're turning our mom brains off right now and we're turning on our entertainment brains. And we're going to be right back with Don Barnes from 38 Special. Hang on loosely. We'll be right back, but don't let go. Keep it here on the Mulberry Lane Show, brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Meet the celebrities on your radio station. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Thanks for keeping it here on the Mulberry Lane Show, brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Well, you know him as co-founder, lead singer, and guitarist of the hit rock band 38 Special, who brought you hits like Hang On Loosely and So Caught Up In You. Now, Don Barnes is here to give you the scoop on how his lost solo album, Ride the Storm, originally recorded in 1989, but never was properly released until now. And right now, it's all rock and roll with Don. Don Barnes, Ride the Storm, lost solo album, now reborn. Yeah, yeah. Hey, that was great. <laughs> trying to harmonize along with you, you know? Awesome. <laughs> love that. <laughs> now, this is such an interesting story of how this lost album, that probably would have been a mega hit had it been released at the time. But, you know, it got buried. It just recently was resurrected. And so how did this all come about? Uh, I was given an opportunity years ago by A&M Records. It was the, 30, the label, 38 Special was on, A&M Records. Okay. And they gave me an opportunity to write and co-produce a, an album, and I was able to write with whoever I wanted. I co-wrote a lot of songs with Martin Briley, who's a British guy that uh, he had a couple of hits and worked with Julian Lynn and a lot of people over Abbey Road and everything, but just a masterful songwriter. And then I was able to corral the greatest players in the world, Jeff Vaccaro and Mike Vaccaro from the band Toto, who uh, it was truly an honor to have them in the studio, and sadly they didn't live to see this release, and I um, just sent out notes to the family what an honor it was for me to have them. Also, Dan Huff was the guitarist, the session guitarist back then, but he's a titan in the music business yeah, now in the Nash- industry. Yeah, he's a producer, yeah. Yeah, Keith Urban and Rascal Flatts and everything, just an old friend, but he's just a monster guitarist. Uh, Denny Karamasi from the band Heart, drummer, played on four songs, and uh, several other guys. But anyway, we came in there, and it was an explosive performance. We just 
slammed them out there. It was a great time. They all loved the song. Everything was mixed. Everything was wrapped up and ready to go. And who has this happened? The whole record company was sold out from under us to Polygram, big worldwide acquisition. And everybody that had a project, all the A&M artists, their albums were shelved. Everything was shelved, never to see the light of day because of all this buyout. So and then after over the all years, that input and all that assembly of brilliant musicians. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a little bit more disappointing what happened. <laughs> so, so now my manager and I tried to get the masters, you know, the okay. master tapes and everything so we could appeal to another record company or put release it ourselves or whatever. Well, they weren't about releasing or doing any deals. It was all a big conglomerates. This is the boring side of the business. Big yeah. conglomerates are about holdings and acquisitions, and right. I figured they probably released it posthumously or something. But uh, last year, a guy from Melodic Rock Records, Andrew McNeese, wanted to put together a compilation, two CD package of outtakes, you know, uh, bonus tracks and things. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do it, but I can't find it. And uh, so he did a search. Now, all this time, I thought that those masters were being kept, you know, in a climate-controlled vault somewhere, you know. Yeah. So he did three different searches, extensive searches through Universal Music, and they basically told him, don't bother us anymore. They've been destroyed. All those masters were destroyed. So you're talking about a lot of work and a lot of writing in two years of my life, you know, So, and it was destroyed. And all the brilliant performances. All the performance, and, and again, you know, Jeff and Mike Beccaro, you know, they're, they're not gone. here today. And so I remember the last day of the remixes, we put like a rap rock mix together, a big, big drum, the guitar, bigger stuff, you know. And the guy gave me a two-track tape and wrote in red ink all the titles of the songs, and I left, came back to Atlanta from L.A. there. All those years, I had moved three times. I turned the house upside down. I went and looked everywhere, couldn't find it. And my son, my grown son, he had borrowed it. Just, he just enjoyed listening to it. You know, he'd, he'd move. He had some bins and storage down in my basement. And I looked around. I said, well, maybe Jason's got it in his junk over there. So I pulled all his bins out. And there was the red lettering of the song titles in the bottom of the storage bin, the only copy in the world existing. And I just about fell out. And yeah, he was so shook up when I told him. He said, Dad, I didn't realize I had the only copy in the world. So my belief in those songs never wavered all those years. I knew they were great, well-written songs. When you, you heard them again, what was your thought? Oh, it was it was amazing. I, you know, we remastered, we mastered everything. People have asked, did you go back and retouch up or anything? No, it's exactly the way it was back then. It was the two-track mixes. There was no going back and in and fixing this or whatever. It's exactly the way it, it sat from so 1990. Now, so were you pretty happy with the mixes? Like, oh, it was oh, static. You... Okay, it wasn't no, because like, oh, I, I wish I could have brought this up or moved this down or changed this. No, now there were, there were two mixes. The original mix, now I did get the opportunity back then to go and remix them and make it bigger. So that's what I was happy with. I was satisfied back then. And those mixes hold up now. I mean, I was very happy to have the rock mixes. So now it's a compilation of two CDs, the original mixes, which are fine. They're great. They're a little bit more fashion for a little bit more AOR radio or whatever, but the rock mixes are bigger and more explosive. And then there's three bonus tracks, which were three demos that are really good songs that didn't make the final cut, but Martin Briley sent 
sent me, remember DAT tapes? He sent me DAT files of those songs. I thought, wow, those are really good. So they're on there. The, the album artwork is a bit of a metaphor tied to a tornado trying to just wrangle with all the unexpected twists and turns to get this thing out to the public. You know, just trying to hang on. All these years later, if I'm so happy to got to see the light of day and I crack a bottle of champagne the day it was released, oh, you know, so. <laughs> and drank the whole thing. And I got to tell you, after all this, now, five stars across the world. We've got Germany, Japan, UK, everybody's at Amazon and iTunes. Five stars. Everybody, A&M Universal was sitting on some buried treasure. It just shows you what record companies, they don't know what they have, you know. Oh, and you think about all the stuff that's still buried and is a treasure, too. Yeah, I, I was talking to a guy in the UK the other day. They were playing right, the song, Ride the Storm. It's just blowing up over there. And he said, I do believe that you created a monster. <laughs> yeah. Lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter with 38 Special, Don Barnes, here on the Mulberry Lane Show talking about his lost solo album, Ride the Storm, out now. You're going to hear more with Don right after this. So keep it right here with your radio sisters. Be right back. Gonna ride the storm. and everything in between. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Thanks for keeping it here on the Mulberry Lane Show, brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. In the middle of a chat with lead singer, songwriter, and lead guitarist with 38 Special, Don Barnes is here talking about the story behind his lost solo album. Now, you got the scoop of how it was buried by A&M Records when they were absorbed into Polygram in 1989-90 and how he was able to find some mixes from that original session. And now, almost 30 years later, Ride the Storm is officially released. We'll continue the story with Don right now. What's Ride the Storm the title of the album back then? Yep. Wow, that was prophetic. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I know. I, I didn't know what was to come, you know, after all that time. It, was, it definitely was wrangling, riding that tornado. <laughs> the, the guy, the Italian guy that did the artwork, Nello Del Omo, he's got his own website. Just a wonderful artist. This guy's amazing. But, uh, yeah, we tweaked it back and forth. And I said, he at first, he had the guy on the, the album cover. He, the guy's he's riding the guitar tied to a tornado. And he had a helmet on the guy. I said, no, there's no helmet. This is not fate. This is, this guy, this you know, is he's doing, wrong. that's right, yeah. So we tweaked the art, but uh, everything came out right. You know, 
I was glad that I had a hand and the artwork and the photos and just everything was a really nice package and everything because if it would have been released after I'm gone, I wouldn't have had any hand in it. So I'm glad and to it wouldn't have been, been able to so do much it. Fun. Yeah, that wouldn't have been fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> so now, do you ever think of the what ifs? Like, you know, what if this had been, you know, released in 89, 90? Well, I tell people this is kind of the eventual record that 38 Special was going to do. Okay. There was a little bit of shake-up after, you know, 12 albums back then. There was a bit of creative differences, the old cliche, you know. Okay. Some of the guys wanted to go a little bit more toward the middle, and you can tell what they did with the with the ballad Second Chance. They wanted to get more of the AOR kind of album-oriented uh, adult contemporary kind of thing. And I wanted to keep it amped up and rocking, you know. I was okay. just just the aggressive attitude, guitars in your face, and we call it muscle and melody, you know. It's a, got that muscular guitar and some good melody, a good story over the top, and it's a simple formula. And hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was what was going to be the thirty-eight special record, and I'd written with that in mind. But now thirty-eight specials, we're all together. We're yeah. doing hundred cities a year. We're still we're doing great. Yeah, you know? we actually do three of these songs in the show. So, okay, so that has become good. part of the 38 special show as well. Yeah, so I got, you know, and people say, you're going to go off and do a, you know, put a band together and do a solo thing. Why? I'm playing to many thousands of people every night. I can just do it right here within right. a great band, you know, just so we're playing and playing the song. Exactly, yeah, why not? Right. So now with 38 right. special, when Donnie Van Zant was the other lead singer, how did you guys decide who would sing what song? Uh, he had a more of kind of a, earthy, bluesy voice, and mine was more radio-friendly, I guess more commercial, you know, so it was always uh, a team. We, we always felt like it didn't matter who carried the ball as long as we won. We were always great friends. We've known each other since we were 14 years old. It's always the obvious thing. He would take the rougher kind of songs that lent themselves into that kind of situation, you know. You know Donnie, you now he had to retire due to health reasons. He had uh-huh. uh, inner ear nerve damage after all the amps for 40 years, you know, all the music for so long. Yeah. They read him the riot act and macro MRIs and everything. They said you have very few nerve fibers left, wow. and if you continue doing what you're doing, you're going to be absolutely stone deaf. So, wow. I told him, I said, you know, your brother Ronnie, you know, he was killed in the plane crash in '77. I said he would have been so proud that you made it this far, and you did great. And if they told me that, I'd be gone tomorrow. It's just not worth it, you know. Yeah. They said that he wouldn't hear, you know, his, his kids laughing and Thanksgiving dinner, anything. They told him everything. So yeah, yeah. it was one of those things. It was sad parting, but he's been my partner all those years. And I talk to him all the time. He's yeah. doing fine. Oh, that's awesome. Now, are you still writing yeah. quite a bit? Yeah. Yeah, we still have a, a new 38 special stuff. We're about halfway through. We've got some great songs. Harken back to a little bit of the 80s stuff with a little double lot kind of approach to it. But, uh, you know, good melodies, good songwriting. Jim Peterick is involved, the okay. band Survivor, remember? Yeah. And so we're all, yeah, we're all doing it. We try to find the time between 100 cities a year, you can exactly. imagine. So try to have a life between two. Yeah, i got to have a life, too. <laughs> Don Barnes, special guest here on the Mulberry Lane Show. You know Don from 38 Special. You're hearing the scoop on his latest album, which was actually recorded in 1989, considered the lost album. Well, Ride the Storm is out, and you're hearing all about it here on the Mulberry Lane Show. What's it like touring today versus back in the 80s, 90s? We see the generations out there. You know, the people have kids that played our music in the houses. see the young kids out there learned off of the Guitar Hero rock band <laughs> games. And they're out there, 14-year-old kids, high-fiving each other when their favorite song, you know, comes on. We're like, dude, you weren't even born when I talked about it. But it, it, it's great. We see instant reaction, people singing along. It's a big escape for all the big crowds out there. And 
and some tears in her eyes, some song might remind them of someone, you know, and, and you see all of that, and it's, a, it's the greatest job in the world to bring joy to people every night, so we have a good time. Awesome. And then, Don, do you have any words of advice for the bands out there that are looking for that hit record, you know, what's some advice you would share? Well, there's quite a bit. I don't mean to sound discouraging, but I tell young guys, they've got a little band and they think they're pretty good and they want to get a record deal. I said, buddy, if you absolutely have to do it, you know, because you're going to sacrifice everything and you're going to, it's, it's anniversaries and birthdays. You're going to be rehearsing. You got to be six steps ahead of yourself. You got to write 500 songs and maybe publish 50. All the brutal honesty of the business, it's competitive and it's all that. I say, uh, like I said, I don't mean to sound discouraging, but if there's any more stability to fall back on if you're good at something, because there are no guarantees, and you ladies probably know that too, you can give a 110% and still not make something happen, even though you want it so bad. bad, And so do it for the love of it. Do it for the love, and, and, and it'll find its way, I tell the young guys, even if they play on the weekends. You know, when you try to eat from it, it's gonna be, it's, it's tough, you know. So we were just too stubborn to quit, and I was, I've had that passion and conviction to want to be that ever yeah. since, you know, the Beatles and all that. You know, we were big fans of all that, and we mm-hmm. saw the, the, the happiness and the smiles. And, uh, you know, a band is like a second family. It's a support group. One person gets down and the other other ones lift them up, prop them up and say, come on, we can we can push, push, push through. So uh, it's a lot of that going on. And you girls are family, so, you know, that's uh, always a plus there. Yeah, that you know? helps a lot. Well, yeah, Glenn, so. we would love to have you back when the next 38 special album is ready to go. Yeah, it should be about six months. Yeah, okay. so we'll definitely get hooked up. Okay, we'll save you a chair right here. Thank you, ladies. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Thank Don. you, Don. Don Barnes, frontman of the band 38 Special. He's got his new Lost solo album finally released called Ride the Storm. Gotta download it. We'll be right back here on the Mulberry Lane Show with New York Times bestselling author Catherine McGee. We're going to take you to break with a classic 38 Special hit. you covered the mulberry lane show now here's mulberry lane thanks for keeping it here on the mulberry lane show brought to you by braddock finnegan dermatology the young adult novel the thousandth floor was a breakout 2016 summer hit by author katherine mcgee now she's about to release the much anticipated sequel the dazzling heights and you get to hear all about it from the author herself katie mcgee is here Welcome, welcome to the show, Katie McGee. 
I wish everyone sang me onto shows. Why doesn't everyone do that? That was the <laughs> loveliest intro I've ever received. Oh, thanks. Good to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Okay, so now set the stage for the world you created for those who aren't familiar with the first installment, The Thousandth Floor. The novel takes place in New York City 100 years in the future okay. when there is a thousand-story skyscraper on Manhattan in New York City. So the book opens, The Thousandth Floor, the first novel opens in the prologue with an unnamed character falling from the roof, so from the thousandth floor. And as the reader, you don't know who she is or why she's falling. And then the book backtracks and tells the story of five characters. And when the book opens, they sort of lead these very separated lives. And then they become increasingly intertwined over the course of the novel. And then at the end, it culminates in this dramatic series of events up on the roof. And then someone does die. And the second book picks up right after the first one ends as everyone's sort of reeling from this shocking turn of events. And then once again, it has this kind of dramatic ending where someone else dies. So they really are futuristic love stories set in this fun, exciting future city, but each book has this overarching mystery that, you know, something bad is happening at the end and you're kind of fast forwarding to see what that will be. So it's a page turner, basically. I hope so. (laughs) If I did my job right, it should be. Yes. So now this was inspired by China, something you read about China, right? Yes. So there's kind of this overarching trend or increasing trend in cities in Asia that they're becoming more and more integrated in the sense that buildings are stretching higher and higher and they aren't just single-use buildings. So it's no longer here's an apartment building, here's a building with offices. You know, everything is becoming part office, part apartment, part retail. And so the idea is that you can live in your building and go to work in your building and then go downstairs and eat dinner in your building. And the most extreme version of that is sort of what I projected, which is this thousand-story city where the skyscraper holds everything from apartments and retail to hospitals and interior parks and gardens. So it's an enclosed you know, transit, world. Kind of. It is, but it is not a dystopian world. You know, it's not like they can't leave and they do leave, but it's just so convenient inside that you don't need to leave if you don't okay. want to. So now oh. you worked at Alloy, which is a book packager and TV production company, and that's where you learned some important, you know, novel writing tips and, you know, you graduated from Princeton, that's not where you learned it. You learned it actually on the job. So kind of share what you learned there. Yes. You know, I I always tell aspiring writers to read or to study how to write screenplays because I think that there's something to be learned, you know, from kind of the screenplay approach to writing. And that was not something I learned in college. You know, I learned a lot about writing essays in college and even about writing beautiful paragraphs, but no one in college really taught me how to structure a story. And that was something that I didn't learn until I was on the job, you know, working in Alloy, working in development of stories for books and TV to actually know how to sit down and say, okay, here are my characters and here's where I want them to start and here's where I want them to end. And then how do I fill in the three acts of story to get them from that starting point to that ending point? And that has proven utterly invaluable as I've become a writer myself. It probably helped crystallize the process and not putting in all the excess stuff in there. Exactly, exactly. Okay. You want every scene to sort of take the story forward. If you just joined us, you're listening to The Mulberry Lane Show and best-selling young adult author, Catherine McGee, is here talking about her latest book, The Dazzling Heights. You edited The Vampire Diaries and Pretty Little Liars, so did that help hone the process for you as well? Absolutely. That really helped. I got both familiarity with the young adult market. You know, I read a lot of young adult novels anyway, and I was very familiar as a consumer, but to actually be on the inside and to see the changes that happen between a first draft and a final draft and to know that 
no first drafts are perfect, even those of best-selling authors, you know, really boosted my confidence. And then I'm also very lucky. Yeah, I'm now friends with those authors. So I I feel very fortunate that it's actually way more fun to be a fellow author than to be an editor. Because even though I I was their friend when I was their editor, now I don't have to play bad cop and ask them for drafts. I think I can actually just commiserate about our evil editors that ask us deadlines. It's nice to have been on both sides. Exactly. So now you wanted to create a different outlook, a less dystopian than like the Hunger Games. Now, did you hesitate doing that? Because it's the age old question is, do you write for the current market or do you stick to your vision and take a gamble that the market will embrace a new direction? I definitely was taking a gamble. You know, when I started writing the books, it was 2014. It was still very much the age of dystopian novels. I think we've kind of transitioned to an age of fantasy and and sort of large epic stories set in really interesting speculative worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, you know, dystopian was still very much prevalent, and no one was really writing stories in any kind of hopeful future. Certainly now, more than ever, with the current political climate, I do think that we need hopeful stories. You know, right. I think there's something to be said for reading a book where it shows a world, again, it's not a perfect world. We didn't get everything right because people aren't perfect. Right. But it's a better world. We've left the world better than we found it. And I think there's something nice about reading a book where you know, it actually might make you feel hopeful about the outcome. Yeah. That's so now this series has been picked up for TV and rights have been sold internationally. So how involved will you be in that process? And then what's your next project? I am um, not very involved in the TV sale, but I have incredible agents in New York and on the West Coast who are representing me in that. I feel very lucky in that. And then um, I have loved seeing all the international editions. So it is now translated into, I believe, 28 languages. Have you Korean collected all of them? Arabic. Uh, I have been trying. I don't okay. have quite all of them, but it's fun to see all the foreign covers. And I have readers reach out to me in other languages, and I'm literally using Google Translate to communicate <laughs> with them because I can't even read Russian. Um, I bet you can't really believe this is your see. life, really. It's so much fun, and it does. It feels very surreal to know that there's people all over the world who are actually reading a story that I wrote. So that has been so so much fun. Um, I do have a new project. As I said, I'm working on book three of this trilogy. But aside from that, I do have a new project that I'm trying to sell this year so that it will come out pretty much directly after the release of the third book in the Thousandth Floor Trilogy. So it will be more fun, exciting, dramatic stories, but it will not feature a character dying per book. So for those of you whose hearts (laughs) are broken, I won't be doing that in the next series. (laughs) Okay, and you'll have to come back and chat about that one when it's ready to go. Yes, absolutely. And quick advice for the novelist who's listening. Always keep reading. Keep reading and keep reading things that are very different, both in voice and in audience than what you write. So I always find it helpful to read Everything from comic books to historical fiction to the King James translation of the Bible. I mean, I'm not kidding. Just to to have something that sounds so different from what you're writing and to kind of be jarred out of your voice, I think it helps stress you as a writer. So the more that you read, the better and more impactful your own writing will become. Great advice, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for joining the show, and we'll chat down the road. Thank you so much. That's Catherine McGee, best known for her futuristic young adult novel, The Thousandth Floor, which skyrocketed to number two on the New York bestseller list. And now the highly anticipated sequel is called The Dazzling Heights, out now. Well, next up is Jackson Galaxy of Animal Planet's hit series, My Cat from Hell. Keep it here on the Mulberry Lane Show for everything from music to authors to cat whisperers. We'll meet you right back here. Your weekend getaway. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. 
Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Okay, imagine taking 50 kitties on a cross-country trip. Now, if you're a cat lover, this is definitely your segment. You're going to meet Cat Daddy Jackson Galaxy, the pet psychologist from the Animal Planet show My Cat from Hell, which airs Saturdays at 7 p.m. Central. Jackson is here to chat up the new season and, of course, all things feline. Jackson Galaxy, feline psychology. He'll find the harmony if you got a cat from hell. Oh, my God, that was fantastic. Best <laughs> intro ever, ever. Oh, so awesome to have you on the show, and I understand you have a musical background as well. I do, yeah. I mean, before the whole cat thing took over, I mean, I was nothing but a singer-songwriter. Okay. Like, do you think, you know, being in touch with your creativity and that helped you identify with cats? 100%. I mean, I, I think that what I brought to the table originally, cats and dogs, was that I came from sort of an artistic point of view right. instead of a scientific one. There's no way I could have ever gone to vet school or anything that you know, involved math or science <laughs> or anything. So I, I didn't have a choice, basically, you know. And um, I approach cats in a weird way in the same way as I would writing a song. Okay, now talk about the experience that changed your life. You were working at the pet shelter. I was working at an animal shelter in Boulder, Colorado. I mean, I had been working there for a couple of months just basically to try to make ends meet uh, musically. And uh, yeah, there was this moment really where I was working with 40 cats at the same time. They were all in cages and sort of screaming and, and I'd used this new technique I had been trying out and Within, you know, a half hour, I had 40 quiet cats. And that weird sort of defining moment where at one point you're like, wow, I've got this path in life. And on the other hand, you're like, so does that mean I'm never going to play the garden? Because you know what right, I mean? Like, right. That weird moment, yeah. So now it's one thing to have this connection with cats, but then another thing to end up with your own TV show about your special abilities, and then, you know, actually discovering an industry around what you're doing. So that path had to be rather winding, I would think. Yeah, I mean, because I know you must have had this conversation with your parents where you're like, Mom, Dad, I want to be a musician. And they're like, oh, my God, you're going to be poor. Right. You, you know, you got to have something to fall back on. And then when I have that conversation with my dad twice, once when I'm a musician and once when I'm like a cat behaviorist, you know, and, uh, it, yeah, they gave up on me pretty quickly. But, I mean, it, it was kind of a strange thing that before this show hit, most people were like, you do what? Right. You know, oh, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, that's a job? You know, the answer was usually no, that's not a job. But, you know, it, it was interesting. I mean, it's one of the best things is that the door is now open for other people who do what I do, and, right. and people don't think of it as such a weird thing anymore. Uh, they've seen it and how it works. So now, how much is actually right. pet psychology and how much is people psychology of what you do? Oh, God, it's like an easy 50-50. Okay. Uh, yeah. In fact, I think it even leans towards the human. Uh-huh. I think it's probably 70 30 maybe because okay. I mean cats respond to the energy in the home and the mm-hmm. energy is dictated by the humans and there becomes this sort of vicious cycle where the cats get worse the humans get worse and it becomes this like tornado of <laughs> you know psychosis you has know? there ever and, been uh, a case you couldn't solve that you had to give up on no but that's the thing I mean I, I think that success is sometimes defined kind of strangely you know that humans bring me in to get a certain result. Do I always get that certain result? No. But what I do wind up with is happier people and happier animals. And they probably learn something about themselves as well. 
Oh, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, it's mm-hmm. true. I mean, it, I think that by working on another's problem who lives in your home, you're always going to learn something about yourself. Cat behavioralist Jackson Galaxy here on the Mulberry Lane Show talking about the brand new season of My Cat from Hell, airing on Animal Planet. So now what do you hope people will take away from this season of My Cat from Hell? I mean, what I'm, what I'm hoping for every season is a better understanding of animal nature, how important it is for us to have relationships with animals, how they make us saner as people, you know, and I think that the more we appreciate the animals in our lives as being something besides, you know, possessions and more about beings that we're having relationships with, the better our lives become. And okay. I think it's a win-win situation. Uh-huh. Now, if anyone is having a problem with the cat, what is your first piece of advice to them? The first thing to do is to step away from the cat. <laughs> Take a moment to divorce yourself from that sort of emotional storyline and start looking at the problem. Your cat is acting out because they're anxious, because okay. there's something in their world that's freaking them out. It's your job to figure out what that is. And the only way you can do that is to stop getting angry. Act like a journalist or a detective where you're not involved in that storyline. And and answers will start coming to you. Kind of take the emotion out of it and look at it more like a problem solver, which probably helps in people relationships, too. Oh, yeah, (laughs) man. Good luck with that one. (laughs) And then before we let you go, any plans for any music or a cat album or anything like that? There's always plans for music. I mean, you know, it's funny about how, you know, as soon as this show started, I had to put music on the back burner for the first time in my whole life. But, you know, as things get a little more sane in my life, which I hope is coming, um, (laughs) music will come very soon after that. Well, we'll look forward to that. All right, Jackson, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. Well, that's Jackson Galaxy, a cool cat who's all that and loves cats. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jackson, thanks for bringing your special brand of feline love to the show today. Yes, and make sure you guys check out My Cat from Hell, Saturday night, 7 p.m. Central on Animal Planet. Be there. Okay, Rachel, who else do we have to thank today? Big hugs to novelist Catherine McGee. Oh, yeah. You definitely dazzled us with the dazzling heights. Loved hearing about your process and how you learned your craft. So you guys got to pick up a copy of this New York Times bestselling author, The Dazzling Heights, out now. Perfect way to start your fall with some YA fiction, along with that pumpkin latte. Oh, yeah. Okay, sisters, who else? Okay, well, we got to thank this guy for bringing the music and the magic today. And writing the storm. Yes, and telling those stories. (laughs) Don Barnes, frontman of 38 Special. Don, thanks for stopping by and telling us all about your new solo album, that was lost for so many years and that incredible music business story of how it was found and resurrected and so appropriately titled you guys gotta download ride the storm now for what don calls that classic muscle and melody love it okay well labor day is almost here isn't that awesome that we have this three-day weekend we hope you make the most of it we're gonna see you next weekend we got a full show already amped and ready to pump it out That's right. I'll be there, too. What do you mean? You were just on such a roll. (laughs) I'm here, too. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Remember, we love you. Yeah, you guys make it worth it. You know all those crazy stories we tell at the top of the show? The things that happen to us week after week. Yes, all of that stuff. Who would we tell if it wasn't for you? (laughs) (laughs) So meet you here next weekend for more interviews, more entertainment, more fun. 
Bo. Stay happy and stay blessed. Allie, don't forget to be awesome. Rachel, that's a wrap. Take it out of